0: Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age.
1: Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome back to God's Godsplaining. My name is Father Bonaventure, and I am joined by Father Patrick Mary Briscoe, who is a teacher at Providence College and also a parochial vicar at St. Pius V. And I'm here doing studies at Washington, D.C. So, Father Patrick, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, great to be with you, Father Bonaventure.
1: So, what is what is going on, Father Patrick? If you want to just fill in people for a little bit about what about is going on? You're a busy man with both Providence College and with St. Pius V. So, is there anything particularly coming up? It's kind of mid year for the students. Um...
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: They're starting Everybody's to feel the burn. Everyone's feeling a little bit, dis, you know, disappointed and disheartened. Yeah, because Christmas Definitely. is gone and Easter is too far away, and Definitely. summer is really too far away. Okay, the
0: nine months of February have absolutely set in.
1: Excellent. They're all
0: present. They're realizing that they have to try in class. You know, they're 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 bitter about assessment.
1: Yeah, and papers are gonna be coming at some point, probably not for a little bit of time, but they're still worried about that. So it's not always the most exciting time of the semester for people or the time of the year as well. So we thought we'd add a little excitement to it in a way and think creatively or imaginatively. And Father Patrick uh, came up with a topic and we thought we'd wanna talk about, well, dragons, because why not, right, why not? So Father Patrick, um, everyone has their own ideas, About dragons, they're probably in their own mind right now. They're imagining some sort of fire-breathing thing. Maybe it's green. Maybe it's brown. Maybe it's some other color. It might have wings. It might not have wings. It might have scales. It might not have scales. But what got you? What gets you so excited about dragons? Like you wake up in the morning, you say, "Dragons, yes." Dragons. Tell me about dragons.
0: Well, um, the only actual dragon that I've ever seen in my life is the one that lives in the Fort Wayne Children's Zoo in Fort Wayne, Indiana. and uh it moved in when the indonesian rainforest exhibit was completed that whole world was added to the zoo when i was a kid yes and i always thought the komodo dragon that lived there was the, the possibly the coolest thing ever
1: yes you have actually seen two dragons Um, but the komodo dragon is one of them. So the komodo dragon is one of my favorite animals. They are huge gigantic They have I think they have no natural predators Um, so I love visiting those things too. They're great, (laughs) but you have seen another dragon of course, which would be a What's the second dragon? You don't remember? Okay, so bearded dragon, of course. Oh, of course a bearded dragon How could could I have forgotten? Of course people who are listening might if they have pets um they might have decided not to have dogs or cats because you know why would you have dogs and cats when you can have lizards lizards are great indeed and lizards are kind of like dragons if you can say anything it's kind of like an imaginary creature but maybe we're going to talk about whether they're imaginary um and bearded dragons are probably the most popular because they're easy to take care of uh they don't grow too big they don't live too long they're very friendly they actually enjoy sitting on people's shoulders so for anyone out there, this is a plug i don't sell bearded dragons nor do i get any money from selling bearded dragons but if you want to move away from the dogs and cats and birds and fish thing and go into some real animals like lizards uh, bearded dragons are the best way to start with that and we have had those around the house of studies for various things so um uh, father patrick has met a bearded dragon of course okay <laughs> so you've got two dragons as one brother. does yeah today's okay, show one brought
0: does. to you by petco where the pets yeah,
1: go i don't even know if they sell you know well, we could do a different story, a different episode about animal rights and whether you can own drag, whether you can own lizards or not. But anyway, um, okay. So, so Komodo dragon was obviously a big part of your childhood, or at least a part of your childhood. One day, um, but <laughs> exciting, I think, exciting. But I, and they are exciting. If anyone hasn't, if anyone hasn't seen a Komodo dragon, go find one. Um, but obviously, we're not going to talk about Komodo dragons here, although we could. Um, what, what other, what, what's the dragon? Uh, theme that you thought about or like when you think of dragons beyond the Komodo dragon, what are we really talking about here? Right. Well, uh,
0: you know, the big movement that I was thinking of was uh, was the, the role that monsters play in the scriptures in general. Hmm. You know, so I started thinking about this uh, last fall when I was teaching Genesis in the Western Civ program at PC. I noticed that snakes especially have a big role in the old Testament and then monsters more generally speaking. So yes. I've been I've been thinking about this question of monsters. Why are they in the Bible? What do they What do they reveal to us? Uh, what, just what's going on there? What What are these things, and uh, and what role do they have? Yes. So biblically speaking, the biblical narrative of monsters, I think, is very interesting, which includes even dragons,
1: which includes dragons, which people might not be aware of. Um, you know, people might not know all of the, especially the Old Testament, but even the New Testament, we have we have uh, monsters, but particularly specifically dragons, of course. So we thought what we'd do is kind of wander through, talk about some of the biblical references to monsters and sea monsters and other things, um, and then wander through uh, some of the Christian literature, literature that picks up on these themes. Because, of course, you're probably thinking about the Lord of the Rings, and maybe some things that you're not thinking about. And then we'll kind of maybe tie it together and figure out, well, what's the point of it? You know, sort of thing. Okay, so let's start with, why not start with the biblical account? So you were teaching the Old Testament, of course, and what is the... You talked about the serpent, of course. So people are probably familiar with that, but you want to go over and talk about the serpent in the in the Old Testament?
0: Right, exactly. So the first serpent that shows up in the Bible is uh, the serpent that appears to tempt Adam and Eve, right? He, he slithers on into, oh, I guess actually he's walking at that point. <laughs> he ends up slithering later. Yeah, but he, he might walks. have been
1: he was a dragon before he was a serpent, I think. That's yeah. true. He
0: could have been a dragon. Yeah, yeah. definitely. We could assert that now. Declared yeah. by God's pointing today. Why not? Yeah. Uh, s- s- so there's this thing that uh, appears to tempt Adam and Eve, and um, it's definitely some kind of scaly reptilian something uh, that ends up crawling on its belly as its punishment, right? So generally, it's interpreted as some kind of dragon thing that then becomes a snake. So uh, I think our first our first connection of script, as Christians, as um, biblical thinkers, as readers of scripture, when we start talking about monsters and snakes in general, is uh, these are bad things. These yeah, are the and- evil
1: things. And it's, you know, it's tough, uh, tough on snakes, right? So that, you know, because snakes get chosen for this thing. So snakes are the rep- physical representation, at least at the start, from, from the devil. And then this, of course, fills out as you go along, because in Genesis, of course, the the snake tempts Adam and Eve, uh, and then it's cursed, just like Adam and Eve are cursed by God. And then there's that beautiful line about, which is called the proto so the kind of pre-proto-gospel, where the seed of the, of the seed of the serpent will strike at the heel, but the seed of the woman, the good seed, you could say, uh, will crush his head, the serpent's crush head. Crush his head. Um, and that gets played a- out, actually, in terms of if you ever look at a Mary statue, for those you who have not looked at this yet, um, the, in that, that little passage there, but seed of the serpent, seed of the woman, that's seen as, as kind of taken in the church history as Eve um, crushing through the fiat, uh, of accepting the the self plan of salvation, crushing the Satan's plan power, and so a lot of Marian statues. I don't know when it starts exactly, but maybe Fatima, maybe earlier. But Mary statues often have a snake down around the feet, so you can see already that kind of tying in from the first sin. So the you know the 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 original sin, and then you have salvation, the the obedience of Mary, and accepting that kind of turning that around a little bit towards Christ. So. You know, I don't think you can imagine rabbits down there or something, or, or like birds. But so snakes have this kind of negative connotation. To them. And one might say, well, why snakes? You know, why snakes? Have you ever thought about this, Father Patrick?
0: Why snakes? Well, I, yeah, you know, why I snakes think in general. I think in general they're gross. Most yeah, people don't like them.
1: That's probably right. Now, one of our one of the the priests in our in our. Uh, in our order, uh, had lots of snakes growing up, so he he actually liked snakes um, and named them after Spanish Spanish royalty, um, which we know. But that's as, gonna, as one does as one does. Um, but yeah, snakes have snakes. Snakes and spiders are like the things that people are most like predator naturally seem scared about. Right. And if Dang. you get excited about things like evolutionary psychology, uh, then you start telling just those stories. Mm-hmm. And snakes are, like, one of them. So why do we have the biblical narrative of the snake? It's because, well, well snakes, they're, they just are, in the primi- primordial consciousness of, of man, this dangerous thing because they sneak up on you and they bite you and they poison you and stuff. Um, same thing with, like, small spiders, you know? Now, I don't know if that's true or anything, but it, snakes are kind of weird and gross. Um, and that's, there is something about snakes that's just uh, beyond cultures and such. And, of course, um, we see snakes in, well, modern day, not just as pets, but in symbols of the apothecary, so medicine, right? So medicine right, has that snake, that serpent around a, a pole, and that's actually from the scriptures,
0: right? That we we should be thinking of this incident with Moses and the mm. Israelites, right? Where the uh, where the Israelites are complaining, they do a lot of this as they're leaving Egypt. Do you think they'd be more grateful for being saved? But but they're not stiffneck so, people. So they complain. They want the flesh pots of Egypt. And what does the Lord God do? He sends among them um, serpents to punish them. Okay, so the serpents then cause uh, lots of anguish and pain and suffering and woe amongst the people of Israel. They cry out to Moses to save them. Moses asks God, what do I do? And God gives Moses the seraph serpent, which he puts on a pole, which has the power to cure the Israelites who have been bitten by a snake, right? This is all in this is all in Numbers, uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 21.
1: Right. And whenever they uh, look at this, at this, this serpent, then they'll be healed, right, from this sort of thing. So we look exactly. at the, this, the the bronze serpent on this pole, um, right. And I, so medicine has this apothecary has this serpent on this pole, um, and that's kind of a representation there. Okay, so I mean,
0: the the incredible thing about the serpent on the pole is that uh, Genesis, you know, has that first sin, which is wrought by, which is wrought by a serpent, which mm. is wrought by, wrought by some kind of evil reptilian. Uh, which is eventually cured by the cross, right? So this kicks us back to your comment about the protoevangelium, the first yes. proclamation of the gospel, right? It's eventually the cross, um, something mounted on, on on the pole, mounted on the, pole. on the wood of the cross that saves uh, that saves from that first sin.
1: That's right. That's right. So okay. So that's so that's snakes and serpents you could say, and uh, they they look and they, they have this that special forked tongue. They look and look to the look to the dust of the earth, and so that's in the scriptures as well. Um, what about other so? Other monsters in the uh, in the scriptures here. I mean, sea monsters, dinosaurs. What else is what else is in there? When you've been doing you're mining this scriptures for these monsters, you know, monster.
0: Right, uh, right. Uh, so, grant. so sea monsters are not something that uh, simply appears in a kind of chronicle of religious life. You know, as if you're reading a that's a, a medieval account of religious life, you might encounter sea monsters. No, or, yes, or other accounts true. for that matter. Yes, but uh, but you can also encounter you can also encounter these sea monsters. In the scriptures. One of them is Leviathan. I think maybe people have heard that name.
1: See, but that's Leviathan what, what, is that, Leviathan yeah, most is. people probably know about Thomas Hobbes, right? So they have right. the Leviathan, which is that the picture, and it's the state is this giant thing. And people think, oh, that's a great name. But of course, it's named after a monster. Um, so what is this Leviathan <laughs> thing? Uh, no, that's not, that's we're right. not saying anything bad about Thomas Hobbes or about social contract theory necessarily. But here we but go. But we are, yeah.
0: So, so you should apply everything we say to that as well. So, the, uh, so the, the Leviathan in the book of Job is this primordial thing that dwells at the bottom of the mountain. And um, when, when, it's being, when, when Job's knowledge is being questioned uh, by the Lord, the Lord asks him, can you draw a Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? You know, basically asking, are you capable of wrangling this giant beast uh, from, the, from the depths of the ocean?"
1: Yeah, that's, and uh, you know the book of Job, of course, is about unintelligible suffering and the trusting in God and these sort of and these sort of things. So the 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 dragon there, the Leviathan, is meant to be this giant thing that no one else can comprehend and no one else has power over, but he has power over this, right? And then you get modern interpreters who they say, well, the 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 Leviathan, I mean, probably an alligator, and you're like, well, I mean, if anyone's been to an alligator show, they've seen people wrestle these things. It's not a big deal. So it's this bigger kind of again, preternatural, terrifying thing. Okay, um, let's switch over to the New Testament and talk about pra- mm, maybe the fine. the privileged passage in the New Testament is, well, if you had to pick, a, so if the New Testament was written, it has different genres, right? It has gospels, it has letters, and then it has a fantasy book, I would say. Um, now, <laughs> that's not exactly the right way to char- characterize the book of Revelation, but if people had not have not read the book of Revelation, it comes up, well, I forget in the liturgy when it comes up, liturgical year, but it's a f- fantastic in the traditional sense of that book and at word and then the other way as well it's a yeah it's a it's a fantasy book of symbolic vision of the church and encoding what the christian message in this beautiful prophecy but not prophecy in the sense of like necessary future thing although some christians take it that way but as as a yeah a story a deep myth narrative um you could say and in there of course we find we find lots of we find some monsters right so what? Are you, what's your, what? What what monster strikes you? Comes out of? well. So
0: the so the star of the book of Revelation, I have to say, is the great dragon, right? That's true. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. This this this. Well, the lamb technically,
1: to, but the great dragon. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, as far as monsters, the sure, starring but, monster, yeah. right? Well, is, not, uh, is the monsters the not dragon.
1: monstrances, right? Okay.
0: <laughs> the the great dragon, and yeah. so the uh, so the dragon is um, the dragon takes us back to again this theme that we've been talking about about the woman. Um, who, who crushes the serpent, who crushes evil, right? So the great dragon appears in the sky um, and it's waiting for the woman to deliver, uh, to deliver her son. You
1: know, mm-hmm. the dragon
0: wants to devour it and uh, the dragon ends up foiled. Why does the dragon end up foiled? Because a war ar- arises. You know, the woman, the woman flees. The woman's
1: woman yeah taken, uh, fled away, spirited off to safety, which is like the trip to Egypt going away, and then this war erupts between the good angels and the dragon, the forces, and that kind of thing. Yeah,
0: yeah that's right. Exactly, that's right. And so Michael fights the dragon, right? So this is where, this is where all those images of Saint mm-hmm. Michael the Archangel come from. They're scriptural. It comes from the Book of Revelation, and uh, Michael is able to defeat the dragon to throw it down. And to uh, to in so doing to sing the praises of the Lamb, who, as Father Bonaventure said, is actually the star of the Book of Re- Revelation.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the Lamb, and it's and the contrast there between the, the, this giant, great dragon um, who has this terrible power behind him, and then his his kind of minions, the beasts um, who have different heads and all this sort of stuff, uh, right, and then right. this this Lamb, and not just a Lamb but a lamb that is slain like that's the so the imagery there is this the the weakest of all creatures because lamb versus dragon whatever but like dead lamb versus dragon gotta be kidding me okay and yet the it is the dead lamb that triumphs there because of because the lamb represents christ uh, over the dragon it turns out the power of evil is not as great as it could be okay um i want to take a break quick when we come back i want to kind of bring this together and say things about the bible like What's the point of all that? What would we take from these symbols, these monsters? And then kind of move to some Christian literature and see how they compare to the scriptures there. So we're on Godsplaining. We're talking about monsters and dragons, particularly uh, to give us in February, just a little break from the doldrums of the season. So stay, stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. This is Godsplaining. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org/godsplaining. All right, welcome back to Godsplaining. Uh, I am Father Bonaventure, and this is Father Patrick Mary with me, and we're talking about dragons in the scriptures and in Christian literature.
0: Rawr.
1: There it is. That's Fantastic a, a dragon roar.
0: For you. That's that's the
1: weakest <laughs> dragon. That's that's a dead dragon. Um, okay. So Father Patrick, we talked about the Old Testament images of the serpent and 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 uh, the beast, the Leviathan. Then we talked about the New Testament, the dragon and the book of Revelation. And everyone's going to read that book pretty soon. Um, so but why the Why are they there? Like, what, what's the importance of them? Because you might say, well, they're just kind of imaginary creatures. And since we're science people now today, we don't care about imaginary things. You know, so uh, I, don't, I don't, you know, when you get older, you don't play around with unicorns. So why, why we care about these things? But I, I, think, I think they have something else to say about them. But what do you, what do you think the, sure. the point of it is, you
0: could say? So so one of the things to start with, I, I think, is um, the point that's actually made in Joe Boomer talking about Leviathan, mm. is that God has made all of these things, and he knows them. And so the, the kind of fantastical beasts represent um, the supremacy and um, grandeur of God's imagination, right? Mm. Like he can, the Lord God can make even these wild and fantastic things. And so they, they represent God's power um, and his creativity in creation uh, in everything that he's made and the fact that God can know them and can control them so he can dominate even the most uh, oppressive and dangerous of foes.
1: Yeah, that's, I think that's, so both, both his diversity in creation, but then also his power over things, that the stronger these creatures he makes, the more powerful he is, because the maker is always stronger than it's, than it's made. Um, I, think that's, I think that's right. I also wonder if, um, when I was thinking about this, about dragons and monsters there, also they generally represent evil, or some fashion. I mean, there, there. I'm trying to think if there's any reference to a good dragon. Like, are there? You know, this is the kind of Disney thing you have now. But like, good dragons, good monsters. I don't think so. Not really, right? And so it strikes me that the message there also is that that evil is something that's kind of unnatural,
0: you oh, know. Absolutely. And it's not.
1: It's not meant. Like, it's not. This this world is not meant to have great evil in it, and these sort of things, even though it does. But that there's some kind of unnaturalness to it an uncomfortability an alienness to that um as opposed to to the goodness that we have like angels for instance we tend to think about as as humans you know in a human form and stuff um so that right the the goodness that's above us in a way is seems is more human and the and the, the evil is like degrading you know so that when when you take on evil in a sense, you become more of a monster. Like you you lose your 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 relationship to the na- natural order of things it's supposed to be. So I think that's that's just one reflection I had on it. Um, but let's switch to non-revealed literature and talk about some Christian symbolism or example of Christian uh, experience of of dragons or monsters in there. Um, what's you've been teaching Civ or you've taught these sort of things before? So what are people likely to run across in Christian literature that involve monsters. Yeah,
0: absolutely, so I think uh, historically speaking, one of the most important influences is um, the great the great narrative of Beowulf, right? Um, the oh. kind of uh, Anglo-Saxon story that features a Germanic war hero um, that involves a dragon who hoards treasure. Mm-hmm. So uh, Beowulf fights a number, a number of monsters, um, one of them's uh, Grendel, uh, yeah. right? Um, and uh, that, that, that battle is very interesting. But I, I think what we're really captured what really captured me the last time I was teaching this was, was the dragon as the treasure hoarder. And that narrative, that Anglo-Saxon Germanic story, uh, which focuses on the accumulation of treasure, has such a powerful moral tone to it. Because at the end of the day, um, the treasure ends up being a kind of rusty thing that isn't held and that doesn't bring joy. Mm-hmm. You know, so the so the hero the hero fights the monster he gets the thing that the monster is guarding and uh, ultimately it's a kind of letdown it doesn't bring him uh, what what he actually what he's actually looking for
1: okay yeah and that Beowulf classic text there um, what about what about when most people think about Christian literature and fantasy they're going to think of the two giants you could say of English the English writers so J R R Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, or something. And both of these men chose to write fantasies with fantastic creatures, right? With fantastic, a, a time when, remember, they're writing in the 20th century, early 20th century, when we're kind of at the height of the science of progress, right? I mean, World War II is happening, so we're kind of realizing that we can't cure everything by by science and progress. But you're, it's still a time when, well, we're just giving up on fantasies. And yet it strikes me, these two men produce large bodies of work that are fantasies and that people love. Right. Um, and I don't know if you, I mean, as a child, I was, I mean, I, i read both, uh, the, the Lord of the Rings or was with my, with my mother. She was always, she was a huge fan of Tolkien. So read that and I read CS Lewis, uh, in college and you probably had some experiences. Many of our listeners would have experiences of growing up with these, with these texts, you could say.
0: Absolutely. No, my father read, um, all of the Chronicles of Narnia to me. Oh. Um, My sisters weren't allowed. It was just our thing. And then he read, and then he read the Hobbit to the three of us.
1: Okay. Yeah. And, um, I mean, what is so striking about those, like why, why fantasy? Why do you think that, you know, because we read a lot of stuff when we're kids, like frog and toads, you know, frog and toad are friends, frog and toad together. Like I love frog. I like frogs. I love toads. And yet I don't go back to reading those kind of those kind of things as much as I should. Maybe I will after this. Um, but I think people keep coming back to Lord of the Rings. They keep coming back to C.S. Lewis, even the uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. But also his other his other works. Um, what is it about? What is about them that has the staying power? I mean, you could talk about being our inner child, but I think there's something else too. What what is? It, have you have you reflected on what what's those, what's the staying power of these fantastic beasts right. involved in here and the stories they tell about them with Sauron and all this?
0: Right. Well, part of what I love uh, part of what I love so much is Tolkien's own appreciation for what. Uh, Literature is and what it's supposed to do um, for him. Literature is supposed to have a kind of uh, uh, ultimately euphoric ending, right? Um, he 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 has this understanding that there's a power to a good ending, which just sits well with us. I mean, this is just a Christian thing to desire to desire heaven. You know, the 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 goal the goal of this life on earth is to to defeat all of the kinds of vicious uh, monsters that we encounter, right? Mm-hmm. And so the the kind of um, utropalian uh conquering the, the the joy of a cataclysmically beautiful victory uh, yeah i think is just in part and parcel of these tales and it speaks to how we are as human beings and that the ultimate destiny which we are actually made for so the fantastic story represents that captures it and mm-hmm. um in its own way uh transmits and um translates even the, the deeper truths of what our life is supposed to be
1: I think that's I think that's right. There's something about the way fantasy works that you can show deeper truths um, in a way because the creatures involved in it can bear more than real reality can bear. So you might want to say something deeper than just the sensible and talk about the intelligible or the spiritual realm. And if you try to use that with just regular images. They're just not capable of bearing that. Beach balls can't bear eternity, right? Or like the right, depth right. of sin, or depth of of power and force and evil and all this. But when you create a monster, for instance, or a dragon, or something, or like a wraith or wh- whatever it might be, these kind of supernatural beings then can now—they're not load-bearing for the deeper things that we we appeal to, and not in the sense of like childish things. Like we gave up on—we we need to give up on these myths, but that actually they you're, as as you say deep happiness and joy and desire for god is written into our hearts and these fantasies kind of allow us to get back in touch with that in a world where we don't usually think about monsters um that much nor dwell with them in a sense in our imagination right right um
0: one of the one of the beautiful ways um that lewis engages this um you know the kind of distortion and the power of evil that that a monster has is um the scene for um, or the character rather eustace scrub in the voyage mm. of the dawn treader right so right. eustace is this just obnoxious brat um yeah. that that is that is this unbearable child and because of his own pride um uh, he ends up getting himself turned into a dragon right yes right he yes. he uh he uh so so he adopts you know everything that we would think of with uh uh, that a dragon has, you know, this, uh, this uh, scales, temperament, yeah. the scales. Yeah. And, and he, he ends up uh, kind of oppressed with this sorrow, which is mm-hmm. so palpable, which, uh, which is such a powerful depiction of what sin does to us. Anyway, so Aslan, the lion comes, and um, the, the Christ figure, Aslan, of course, has the ability um, to peel the scales away,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, right, from, the, from Eustace and uh, to transform him back into a man. And that process of the lion's claws peeling off the hard, uh, the hard dragon scales, uh, I think is just so demonstrative of uh, what redemption looks like lived out in our own lives when we confess our sins and, and, and do, do our penances that, uh, that, that I think he's captured something that is mm. an essential experience of, 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 of that movement from sorrow to joy in the Christian life.
1: Yeah, and I guess in the medieval, the artist, when we're depicting... Uh, these kind of things as we talked about before with saint michael and the dragon and such are not afraid of using these these fantastic images and these monsters to to draw us to a higher truth in this way um and i think c.s lewis and tolkien are doing that and that in a sense we lose something by not engaging in those kind of enterprises um while at the same time kidding ourselves that when we talk about protons electrons we we don't have fantastic beasts either um they're just smaller (laughs) and like more disappointing right Right. Uh, you know, but there, there you can't see them, and what's going on anyway? Um, okay, so great. So let me draw to uh, kind of start drawing to a conclusion here and say, um, yeah, what, what, what's to be gained from thinking about monsters, and what's to be lost with not thinking about monsters? Well, ultimately, the monsters represent
0: um, the the very real fact that we're engaged in a battle with a very fearsome enemy, right? Um the That's right. the, the monsters the monsters naturally lead themselves to um, to thinking about spiritual warfare um, as St. Paul reminds us that our battle is not uh, not against the things that we see but against principalities and powers. Mm. and um so to imagine to imagine the things that we're really fighting um, as horrible and powerful things which they which they really are um, only begins to touch uh, to touch the surface of how, of how of how deeply problematic um, so many of the evils that we're in, we're battling are. so, Thinking about the dragons, um, engaging the monsters allows us to get amped up for the fight. You know, we can we can re reengage in the battle when when we know that we're facing a fearsome foe. The battle is worth fighting, um, and to know that we to know uh, to know that it it has to be undertaken in a kind of strenuous mm. and developed way uh, is very important. We're fight we're fighting a grave enemy, and the monsters show us that.
1: I think it's yes. I think man's imagination today is so withered. Um, because we don't think in, in larger terms. And you do it doesn't mean you need to believe that dragons exist, for instance, or unicorns or anything. It just means that you can expand the mind to understand there's things beyond this this reality. Absolutely. And, and that, because spiritual warfare is real, it, it, it is true that there are principalities and powers that are for us and there are those that are against us. And that Christ talks about this, and exorcisms are one of the things he does right off the bat um, in his ministry. So realizing that that spiritual warfare is real um and we don't always need help from demons because we're oftentimes our own worst enemies but that we still just, that yeah. this is it would be foolish to think that it's just kind of us and we need to do good and be happy and then help other people out when we can and that's what conquering evil is but that evil is is for maybe this is a topic for another god's playing episode of well why <laughs> Why is it even here? But let's bracket and assume that evil is here and deep evil. I'm going all the way back to the serpent, all the way back that preternatural evil and say, yeah, it's real. And if you, if you miss it, I think C.S. Lewis says this, right? It's the devil's greatest trick to convince modern man that, that, that the devil, he doesn't exist anymore. So that the fantasy things kind of remind us that, well, maybe dragons don't exist. Maybe, maybe. Um, but evil certainly does. And it's a lot more powerful than what we, by our own resources, can get into and deal with. So this week, whenever you're listening in February or March or what have you, um, and you're worried about, you know, imagination stuff, pick up C.S. Lewis or pick up uh, Jared Tolkien or pick up the Book of Revelation or just remind yourself that there are great spiritual powers out there, but greater ones on the side of God and Think about the great things that He has done in spiritual in salvation history, uh, to conquer all the dragons and all the monsters that we might encounter. So, from God's blaining, Father Bonaventure and Father Patrick Mary, we wish you all a a wonderful week, uh, with no dragons except maybe komodo dragons, bearded dragons, but hopefully with plenty of intercession from saints and all the grace from God. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.